Welcome to 321 iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss return to work strategies, advice, and success stories. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, CEO and co founder of iRelaunch, and your host. Before we get started today, I want to remind our audience to register for our iRelaunch job board if you are actively looking to relaunch your career now, because that is where employers come to hire people who are returning from career break. So keep that in mind. You can find it on irelaunch.com. Now to today's conversation. Today, we welcome Katie Perry. Katie is the chief executive of the Daphne Jackson Trust, which under her leadership has become the UK's leading organization dedicated to helping returners relaunch their research careers. Katie is a physicist with a background in science communication and holds a degree and PhD in physics from the University of Surrey, where she worked with Professor Daphne Jackson, the namesake of the organization. In 2022, Katie was awarded an honorary degree by the University of Surrey in recognition of her unwavering commitment to securing the legacy of the Daphne Jackson's trust vision. Since inception, the Daphne Jackson Trust has awarded more than 475 fellowships to relaunching researchers in STEM and other fields. An amazing feat. Katie, welcome to 321i Relaunch. Carol, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here chatting with you today. Um, and, you know, it's fantastic to be able to talk about the Daphne Jackson Trust to a broader audience and certainly to all of your um, relaunches. Yes, well, we're excited to hear everything about it. And maybe we can start with a little background of, about the Daphne Jackson Trust um, for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with it. So could you share a little bit about the trust and, and the mission and the history? Of course, of course. So Daphne Jackson was an amazing lady. Uh, she was the UK's first ever female professor of physics when she was age 34. And uh, she was quite a mentor to me, actually, in my career, because when I was doing my degree and PhD at the University of Surrey, she was my head of department. And she's the reason I actually launched out after my PhD into a career in science communication. Um, she became ill in 1990 towards the start of my PhD. And, and she asked me to do all of her talks in schools for her. So that really helped to ignite my interest in science communication. Um, so I knew Daphne when she was alive and I knew the integrity with which she set up the fellowships. So she set these fellowships up when she was alive in the mid 1980s. The story goes, as she told me, um, she bumped into one of her ex-research students um, in a supermarket and she was there stacking the shelves and she said, what on earth are you doing that for with, you know, you started a promising research career. And the answer came back that she'd had a break for a family um, and she just couldn't get back into research. So Daphne herself thought she would do something about this. So she set up the fellowships. They were intended to be part time to allow a researcher to do a challenging research project alongside a, an individually tailored retraining program that would aim to take away the disadvantage of the career break, place them back on a level playing field with the rest of the research workforce and be their stepping stone back to a research career. Because she thought all of the investment in and investment and time in their education and training is wasted if 
they have a break and, and don't return. Right. That's an incredible story and amazing that you had that uh, relationship and direct experience with Daphne Jackson herself and had that special role um, at when uh, after she became ill. What a visionary uh, and, and such an amazing legacy uh, that, that she's left. Um, can you, Katie, tell us a little bit more about the fellowships themselves? Like, Who's eligible? Uh, how do you get one? Uh, and maybe what what happens? Uh, you yeah. know, once you have a fellowship. Of course, Carol. So the fellowships started originally um, aimed at at women um, who were in a STEM area. So STEM clearly science, technology, engineering, maths. But over the years, they've evolved. So we offer fellowships to all individuals. Um, and they can now be, in, in 2020, we expanded our remit. So they are for all researchers, so across all research areas. So not just STEM, we fully include now the arts and humanities and social sciences. Um, so in order to be eligible for a fellowship, you have to have had a career break of at least two years for a family caring or health reason. So uh, we um, produced a survey last year, and, and we can look and see that now, the reasons for the career break, 72% of people, it's a family reason, 21% it's caring responsibilities, and for 7% it's ill health. So we have those other, you know, smaller percentages, but it does encompass all of those reasons. And quite often they're combined. So sometimes somebody will have a family, but they'll also relocate with a partner. You know, they're out of their normal circle um, of contacts, and then they're looking to return and, and they struggle to return. So the actual fellowship, they were originally two years. We are trying to make them all three years now. So they're three years part time. And, you know, they usually the research fellowships are usually held in, in UK universities mm -hmm. um, or research establishments. So currently they're in the UK. So they're three years. And as I say, it's, it's a research project and an individually re tailored retraining program um, for that individual. What the fellowships offer people is the opportunity to either return to the area of research they were in before or potentially to slightly shift their area of expertise. And we have had some quite major shifts. So one of my favourite um, stories of a fellow is a lady who actually had a 17-year career break. So she was an environmental engineer before mm -hmm. her break. She then had a, a career break. She had a, a family. She had three children. One of them was severely autistic. And that had ignited her interest in autism research. So sometime later, when um, her child was old enough, she decided to try and return to autism research and kept getting the usual knockbacks, which is, look, you don't have any experience in this field, but equally, you've had a long break, you know, and right. she was trying to say, I've got transferable skills, you know, once a researcher, always a researcher, but she just couldn't get back in. So for her, the fellowship was a lifeline. And it offered her the opportunity with the retraining program to learn all of the new skills she needed to launch herself off into a new career in autism research. And in fact, she now has um, a, a large grant. She's continuing in her research and she's doing extremely well. That's incredible. Uh, I'm interested in um, uh, you know, hearing about this story and generally how you talk about um, who's eligible. Um, what does an application process look like mm. uh, and how how does a person talk about their past research and um, bring it into the present to, I, I don't know, to, to continue or uh, tell us a little bit more about 
like on a very granular level what happens yeah. the application so i mean it's i mean i would say everybody's different i mean this is what i love about running the organization i mean everybody's story is slightly different and i don't think we've had two research areas the same but broadly speaking the application process is quite rigorous so we're wanting to ensure that the fellows are suitable for a return to a research career so there are two ways that people can apply for Daphne Jackson fellowships now. So we have what we call a regular route, which is somebody will hear about us, come to us and say, hey, you know, I've heard about the Daphne Jackson Trust. I know where I want to go and what I want to do. Um, and then we will do our eligibility check and then we'll put them into the process to go forward. The other way is where we work with a sponsor. Um, who wants to sponsor the fellowship and we advertise an opportunity and we've got five live adverts out at the moment for opportunities for a sponsored fellowship so that's where we have a sponsor in up front we know that they want to sponsor a fellowship we advertise it we still look at the applicants when they come in and do the same eligibility check so the eligibility check, we have four fellowship advisors and it's their role to have that initial conversation with somebody. So it's a telephone call. It lasts okay. about an hour to an hour and a half. They will talk to them about what they did before their break, their career break, why they were on a break, why they think now is a good time to return. And then they will talk to them about what they're planning and proposing to do as they go forward into their fellowship and into a new career beyond. So you know, we can tease out various things in that initial phone call. Um, sometimes if people aren't quite eligible, you know, Carol, sometimes people have read the website and try and make their circumstances fit yeah. and it's not quite right, which is a great shame because we'd love to help everybody. But, you know, we do have our criteria. So once somebody's eligible, then they start working on a research proposal and we have guidelines for that. And then once they've produced a good proposal, then we will interview them. So we interview at an earlier stage. What I would say is and many of your um, listeners may have heard about academic fellowships. We are quite unlike any other academic fellowship mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. So we interview at an early stage and that interview is, it's a process both of assessment and of support. So we're helping them to maximise um, the benefit from their proposal, what they're looking at doing. What we sometimes find is some people returning they're so keen and eager. They're trying to put too much into it. They're trying to do too much, more than they can do in three years part time. For others, they need, you know, they need maybe a little bit of what you might call parental tough love to get things done on deadlines. Um, we see every everything across the whole spectrum of, of, um, of returners. So that interview process is quite key for them. Uh, and then they have a chance to revise their proposal. And then we send it out to two independent technical referees in that field. When we get the technical reviewers back, comments back, then they can amend their proposal if necessary. And then it's all sent off to six members of our awards assessment panel. So as you can see, it's quite a rigorous process. It takes some months to uh, to get through the whole process. But once awarded, the the returner has started on their on their journey back. And what we like to think is that because the process is rigorous, when they when they start and they go through that door on day one of their fellowship, they hit the ground running. Um, and what the other thing is that we've noticed with the process is their confidence. Quite often at the beginning part of the process, they're a little bit like a deer in the headlights, you know, and they're, they're like, oh, my goodness, this is a journey. And 
what am I going to do? Can I do it? And they question themselves. Their confidence is at yeah. an all-time low. And what happens during this lengthy process, the application process, is the fellowship advisors are there and they offer them guidance, mentoring, advice. And they're there basically to answer any questions that they might have to support them along the way. And so that mentoring and support and guidance happens throughout the application process. And they they all say, in fact, I was just having a conversation with one fellow who's been in post for four weeks and we're doing a podcast on Friday. Oh, um, wow. And she said, I'm only four weeks in, but gosh, the support I got during the application process was amazing because I feel really a lot more confident now than I did at the start. You know, it's really remarkable to us having worked with returners all over the world, um, how um, how common it is at, to have that confidence gap. I, I want to say 100% or very close to 100% of returners oh, yeah, absolutely. have their confidence gap no matter what their field or the length of their career break or even like how senior they were before they took the career break. Absolutely. It's just, it crosses all geographic lines and it's really interesting uh, to, it, it, to see it's, that. It is quite fascinating that even somebody who was really senior prior to a break Having the break, a lengthy break, really has absolutely floored them. And, and they question themselves when they really shouldn't. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I don't know, Carol, the sort of length of break that your relaunchers have, but but typically yeah. ours is around seven years. Yeah, that that uh, that's very similar. I mean, we have people whose career breaks range from one to over 20 years, which I know you also have a big yeah. range. But um, I'd say, yeah, in that uh, seven five to 10 year range um, for people taking career breaks. And then we often hear people say, you know, I only thought I was going to be out a year or two. And then the next thing you know, I woke up and 10 years had gone by. So, yeah, so we see absolutely. that. Too. So let me, let me just understand this a little bit more. Um, I have one point of reference. The National Institutes of Health here in the U.S. have a career reentry grant where if you receive the grant, it's like you have money attached to you and then you can go find a principal investigator who will take you into their lab. Yeah. Is, is that a similar process? Like once a person has been accepted and awarded a fellowship, um, then they're looking to see where they're going to do their research, or is that already part of the initial? No, we've already tied that in at an earlier stage. Okay. So, so when we assess them for eligibility, after that, then they find their, we call them a supervisor. So we find them, so they have a supervisor, and then they work with their supervisor on developing their research proposal. So we, we've tied that in at a much earlier stage. And then we have to have the funding in place for the fellowship before we'll invite them in for an interview. So it all that gets gets tied up earlier on. Um, and I think, you know, for many of them, when they're returning, if they've had a long break, they would not perhaps be confident enough to write that research proposal on their own. Mm. The support that they get from their supervisor in actually developing and writing the research proposal is quite key. So I think it probably it's worth me just saying about the financial model for the fellowships. Yeah. So yeah. we are effectively a facilitating organization. So we facilitate the fellowships. We match. We effectively match people with sources of funding. So our fellowships are sponsored by organizations that have an interest in the research that's undertaken. Mm. So that can be the UK research councils, um, universities, um, other charities, quite a few medical research charities, um, learning societies and professional institutions that are subject specific, of which we have many in the UK, and then also um, industry. 
small amount, but um, but increasing. So we have about five different groups, if you like, of sponsors. So we will work with those either in our proactive um, model where we're advertising for those organisations or we work reactively where I have sources of funding that I can match to people. Um, so once they get to a certain point, we'll make sure that the funding's in place, their supervisors in place and they're all ready to come in for an interview. And then then the rest of the process goes through fairly quickly. I see. And as far as the match goes, like, for the example, the person who is doing the autism research, are you're matching that person with an organization that does autism research or is looking for research to be done in that area? Like, where, yeah, how does that, that would work? be. That would be the case. For that lady, she was actually sponsored by the hosting organisation, which was Newcastle University. But we have others. So we're currently working with the Alzheimer's Society in the UK, and that's one of our live adverts at the moment. We're also working with an organisation called LifeArc, which is looking at translational research. So usually, yes, it's an organisation that is interested in the research that the fellow will undertake. But in... In the UK, certainly we are finding that there's such a focus at the moment on equality, diversity and inclusion that many organisations are wanting to do more in that area and show that they're fully inclusive. And obviously working with a returner, is it allows them, I, I hate to say the phrase, but it allows them to tick a box and, mm-hmm. and show in a demonstrable way that they are engaging with the EDI agenda and mm-hmm. it's something that they're committed to. Mm-hmm. And then what kind of uh, academic background? Is there a minimum level of academic achievement that you have to have in order to be eligible? So, yeah, to be eligible, you have to have um, a first degree and then at least three years research experience. So that's normally, overwhelmingly, um, a PhD Mm. or then postdoc experience. We have helped people who've got just a first degree and research experience and that's usually engineers or people who've worked in the pharmaceutical industry but um, most typically it's somebody who's got a degree a phd and then usually maybe a few years of postdoc experience so that's the minimum is is a degree in three years research experience and then we have we go up to people who've perhaps had um even you know they've been a group leader um, and they've uh, they've gone on to. I'm just looking at our, our research. So one percent group head <laughs> from mm-hmm. our last former fellows survey. But most typically, um, it's people who were a postdoctoral researcher. So they'd completed their PhD, and then they they'd maybe done one or two postdocs. And are the people who are supervising them? Do they get any kind of special training, or how do they get involved in the first place? It's. I mean, quite often it's usually the the fellow themselves that will go and find their supervisor. I see. So okay. they go and find their their supervisor. If we have anyone that comes to us and they're really struggling, then we can guide them. But yeah. typically we would expect them to be able to find a supervisor. They will talk to them about the fellowships. Quite often the, the supervisor will have heard about us and they're very happy to get involved. Usually if it's an institution that's had fellowships in the past, then they'll know about us. In terms of formal training, we don't offer the supervisor any formal training, but we do um, we do contact them and have phone calls with them and want to know that they are fully aware of exactly what it is they're taking on if they want to take on a, a Daphne Jackson fellow. So it's more informal training. Mm-hmm. We often find that former Daphne Jackson fellows go on to supervise Daphne Jackson fellows in the future. Mm-hmm. And that's that's great when they do that. So. 
Well, that's huge because that's one of the signs that we see of a true institutional shift is when there is a critical mass of returners inside an organization or in a field, because then not only are they going to be examples for what success looks like, but they are going to be likely to hire other returners. Yeah, exactly. Then. So, that, so that's a very important piece. Um, and can you say uh, how much the fellowship is, the, the amount of money, or does it depend on what we kind ask of the, We ask the host organisation to set the salary for the Daphne Jackson Fellow. I see. Because in oh. the UK, it was a long time ago, but there, there used to be one centralised salary scale for postdoc researchers in universities. But then when they decentralised it all, what we, we did some research, Carol, actually, a few years ago to say, look, what's going to be best for host organisations if we say a Daphne Jackson fellow will be paid this much? And actually the organisations came back to us and said, look, that would make you really awkward to deal mm. with. So mm -hmm. we allow them to set the salary. Mm. We, we recommend a range and I we see. give a generic job description so that they can fit them in at the right level in their particular salary scale in their organisation. But typically a Daphne Jackson fellow would be paid the same as a postdoc um in um in a university okay. the cost to a sponsor is a little bit more so very roughly the, the cost to a sponsor to fully sponsor a daphne jackson fellowship over if it's fully sponsored for three years is around about a hundred thousand you get gb pounds gb pounds right got it um and you had mentioned that there's also some sort of individualized um plan is is that Besides the sort of academic research part, there's something to support them in the actual retraining program transition. Yeah. Okay, can you tell us a little bit more about what's so, involved with that part of it? So that is something that the fellow and the supervisor will devise between them. It I typically see. will be offered by the host organisation where they're working. So it'll be a mixture, perhaps, of um, of them dipping in and out of lectures that are relevant. Um, it will basically be maybe training on pieces of equipment in the laboratory if they're going back to um, that sort of area. It's maybe training that's done by other group members, other courses at the university. It depends on whether they are, what, what they're doing. So one lady who had a shift from being in maths and statistics, she realised bioinformatics was an emerging field a number of years ago after her break. So she used the retraining programme to learn all the biological sciences she needed to know to launch herself off into a career in bioinformatics. So hers was far more about learning the biology. Whereas I, if you take somebody who's coming back and maybe there's new pieces of equipment in their lab, they'll be trained on that. But in addition to that, so they're all completely bespoke to the individual and what they did before and what they're planning to do in the future. But what we do, what we offer them are three training courses that we run. Mm. And the purpose of those is to get them all together as a cohort so that we can check in with them. We can put them in contact with one another. We can actually teach them some very valuable things, which the, the training courses do. But it's, it's a lovely way of, of pulling them together as a cohort. Yes, the cohort uh, can be very powerful. Uh, we know that uh, from our own experience with career reentry programs at employers that are not research-based, that you know it is a significant personal professional life transition, as you well know. And uh, the when you go through it together, the bonds that you form the people at oh the gosh, absolutely really powerful. And actually, that's one of my questions. Um, once people graduate from the program. 
is there some sort of like alumni community or something that, that's part of Daphne Jackson? Like, how does that part work? We we keep in contact with them. Um, and I think the fact that we had um, we collected data from 90 percent of our target cohort for our last former fellow survey shows that they're really happy to stay in contact with us. So we make an effort to stay in contact with them. But actually, as it's, this is really exciting. We started a LinkedIn group yesterday for current and former fellows. Wow. And in yesterday. 24 hours, we've got 90 of them signed up. Oh, oh, that's great. Like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. So within 24 hours, 90 um, of the current and former fellows and some of them, one of them, a lady who had a 21 year career break um, and she's she's joined up and, and you know, it's it's fantastic. So I think they will have a, their own LinkedIn group now where they can communicate with one another. What we found is that they form geographical groups. So we have a group in Scotland and it's made up of former fellows, current fellows and applicants, and they all support one another. And we have a group in the southwest. We have a group in the Midlands. We have a group in the northeast of England. So, you know, they they will generally form groups themselves um, and then support one another. But we always try and and keep in contact with them through the... um, through the conferences that we run every two years, um, but also now in a non-conference year, we're going to be having a, a fellows networking event where we will pull together former and current fellows to uh, to network. Can you tell us what the conference is? Oh, the conference. Gosh, that's exciting. Um, every two years, we run um, a conference where we it's open to all of the current and recent former fellows. And we are starting to now invite more of the former fellows along. But what we'll try and do is we'll try and look at some of the key topics um, in in our sector, things that are affecting returners, things that are affecting um, policy, etc. Yeah. So what we do is we offer the fellows an opportunity to come along and um, present a poster or an object. And then we will have other sessions around that. So we actually managed at the last conference last year to pull in um, – the, ch- the chief executive of the main UK funding agency, UKRI, in a panel discussion alongside the chief executive of the Royal Society and the Royal Society of Chemistry. So we had some key funders. Um, and you know that the thing that amuses me about this, Carol, we used one of our patrons to facilitate it, Vivian Parry, who has been on the board of UKRI. And mm. all of these, um, all of these people in these positions were women. And still in our feedback, we we had a, a negative comment about the fact that we had an all-female panel. And it's like, oh, my goodness, I really can't believe this. They were there because of their roles, not because they were women. Um, right. But you can never please everybody all the time. That just proves it. But so, so the conference is a mix of getting the fellows together with their sponsors together with um, the staff and our trustees and and other key stakeholders within the UK research sector. And it's a fantastic, uh, it's a fantastic day. Wow. Well, it sounds amazing. Um, Are there a couple of other success stories you could share with us or tell us where people can find more success stories? Oh, yeah. So, so, um, I mean, gosh, success stories, it's where to start, really. Um, I think, I mean, one of the things that's come out um, from our impact report that we produced after conducting our former fellows survey um, is the rate of professors. So in the UK, another agency provided uh, produced some data on career paths in academia. And 
they produced a percentage rate of people going into academia that then went on to become professor. And we looked at our cohorts of former fellows, and we have 10 former fellows who've gone on to become professors. And that rate is five times the national average for the academic sector in the UK. So for us, that is a major um, success story that that our fellows will will go on to to potentially, if they want to, stay in an academic um, career. There's one lady who I love to mention because she conducted her fellowship at the University of Sheffield. She was sponsored by Rolls-Royce because she's an engineer, an aerospace engineer, and she has spent her working life after her fellowship. She was two-thirds of the way through her fellowship. She was offered a job by Rolls-Royce, so she took Mm -hmm. it and went into industry. A little while later, she moved back into academia at Aston University. Then Hmm. she's moved back and forth between academia and industry, and she is now a professor at Loughborough. And she's done all of this while remaining part time. So she can prove that you can do it. She's been successful in both industry and academia. um, And she is uh, she's amazing. And gosh, she came and spoke at one of our events and she told this fantastic anecdote about her children's party that she did. In her dining room, she shipped in sand and had a beach party. Ah. So, you know, the the people that we are dealing with, they are right. awesome. And I just, I loved that story because, you know, as a mother, you you are always thinking of new and in, interesting things that you could do for your kids' parties. But right. there she was doing her fellowship, but also <laughs> having a beach party in her dining room. Wow. <laughs> She's fantastic. Great. I love that story. But, um, On a more serious note, actually, our impact report is on our website. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, there are many other publications on there, our annual reviews, but we're moving now more towards um, just having an impact report. So if anyone wants to download that, um, I think at the end of this, I can make sure everybody has our website address. The other thing I'd, I'd like to highlight on our website, on the homepage, is the video look at the little video. It's four and a half minutes. And it it just encapsulates um, the range of people and subject areas that we cover. Oh, great. Yes, definitely want to look at that and have our audience look at it too. So Katie, let me ask you about the future. Uh, You have been the leader of the Daphne Jackson Trust uh, through a long period and through a tremendous amount of growth. And I'm just curious about how what your vision is for the future um, in terms of uh, the Daphne Jackson's reach and whether you see any um, opportunities for expansion one way or the other. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny, Carol, often people say to me, you've been there a long time, aren't you thinking of moving on? And I'm like, absolutely not. You know, I, I love I love my role. And I think... You know, people say they want a new challenge, but I am the sort of person I will find a new challenge for the trust and then we'll conquer it. So things we're looking at potentially, I mean, we've already expanded our remit in 2020 to include arts and humanities and social sciences. That's been really successful. We've expanded a little bit internationally to, to to Southern Ireland. So we're now UK and Ireland. I'm potentially in my mind is the thought that we could perhaps look a little broader, a little further afield and think about how we might develop Daphne Jackson fellowships or very similar with partners in other countries. So Mm. that's something that's on my radar to think about as we've come out of the pandemic and we're all thinking a little bit more globally now. Mm -hmm. Um, And then obviously the other thing is 
we offer our research fellowships. The other thing that we are rolling out this year are something that we're calling technology fellowships. And gosh, we debated the name back and forth, believe me, a lot. But I think technology fellowships kind of covers it. They're intended to support those who want to return to a, a research support career. Because in the UK, one of the main funding bodies is talking a lot now about research culture and that it's not just a lone PI in a, in a lab or in, a, in an office. It's all of the research support and infrastructure that goes with it. So all of those technicians and others and people running pieces of equipment are equally as important. So we're developing a fellowship that will offer more retraining. So more of a focus on retraining than answering a research question and will place people back in a research support role. So quite clearly, possibly technicians and others. So so that's happening this year, and I'm hugely excited about that. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll always find a challenge, um, and uh, and hopefully, you know, we'll we'll be going on to to bigger and better things all the time. Well, you have a tremendous track record of uh, everything that you've done with the trust so far. So I'm very glad to hear that you don't plan to leave and take a leadership role somewhere else. No, but absolutely not. <laughs> growing the trust and its impact and uh, the way it's changed people's lives and changed uh the course of research and um, what uh, you, you know, uh, professors at, at uh, universities. So, so many places where the, the Daphne Jackson Trust has had a significant impact. Uh, so let me uh, wrap up now, Katie. I have a couple more questions to ask you. One is gonna be about your website, but I want to first ask you the question that we ask all of our podcast guests, and that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience? even if it's something that we've already talked about today? This is a tough one, actually, but I thought about this. And I think my main advice to anyone wanting to relaunch and return is be flexible, be determined, and you will get there. It might not be by the path you originally thought about, but you will get there. Mm -hmm. I love that advice because it's so true and we've seen it play out um, in, in all different ways. So um, this idea about having a path, but having some flexibility in terms of how you get there and maybe that the path might turn one way or the well, other. Is, absolutely. Is absolutely. Excellent, excellent advice. So how can our audience find out more about the Daphne Jackson Trust and the, the, the report that you were referencing in the video? What is the website? So our website is, is simply daphnejackson.org. So that's D-A-P-H-N-E-J-A-C-K-S-O-N, all one word, and then .org. So. Perfect. Um, and that that's really the place to find all of the information mm -hmm. is the, yeah. there, the impact. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. great. And I'm, I'm um, very happy, Carol, if anyone wants to just email me directly. I have a memorable name. I'm not the pop star, but you know. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that at the beginning, but I thought, <laughs> no, we're not going to bring her into it. No, it's uh <laughs> it's quite an amusing name to have. People do remember your name, though. Um, but if, if anybody wanted to email me directly, it's just it's katie.perry, and that's k-a-t-i-e dot perry, p-e-w-i, at surrey, s-u-r-r-e-y dot a-c dot u-k. That I'd is so generous. I'd be more than happy to chat to anyone. Thank and you, you know, Carol, so. we could talk all afternoon. <laughs> I know. I, I I feel like we're just at the beginning. But Katie, thank you so much for uh, for your time and sharing all of your knowledge with us. 
it's been lovely and thank you very much for inviting me on and thanks for listening to 321 i relaunch the podcast where we discuss strategies advice and success stories about returning to work after a career break i'm carol fishman cohen CEO and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. And be sure to go to iRelaunch.com for all the resources to help you relaunch your career, including our job board and events uh, and a whole range of, uh, of information for you, including this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us.